not for nothing that I've chosen songs that speak this morning about the power of evil and the depth of evil as it's been manifested, especially in the oppression of Christians and the oppression of the righteous. The text for this morning is one of the darkest and most evil chapters that you'll find in Scripture. That's 1 Kings 21. A month and a bit ago, I preached on 1 Kings 18 that dealt with part of the reign of Ahab. 1 Kings 21 is still dealing with the same wicked king. So 1 Kings 21 verse 1, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give, it, give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance, that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him, and the scoundrels witnessed against him against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead." So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? 
And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was none like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel his wife stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. So far, the word of God. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a hard chapter to think through. It's hard because it brings us face to face with the reality of the most, the deepest kind of evil, the worst kinds of injustice. And, and the more you read through it and think about it, the more you become aware also of how widespread and how pervasive exactly this kind of injustice is in this world. It makes you sick. It makes you want to turn your eyes away altogether to just think of something else. Can you imagine how many people in the world right now are crying out just as Naboth was crying out as they are being abused, tortured, raped, right at this moment even as we worship God? How many people are crying out in pain to a God that they don't know? Some kind of justice. And this story, it's also sick because of how trivial the motive really was for the killing. It was just a field. It was just a vegetable garden. And so it leaves you wondering in all of this, where was God when Naboth was being killed? Where was God when the stones were smashing his skull to pieces? Where was God when the entire town swept this entire story under the rug afterwards, never to be mentioned again? And where is God when men, women, and children are abused, taken advantage of, even brutalized, even killed by people like Ahab who never face 
justice and who are sometimes even respected and honored by their own societies. How can we claim that God cares when he lets things like this happen? Well, I don't think we'll ever be able to do full justice to that question on this side of eternity, but chapters like this one, they do give us reasons to hold on to our faith and to cry out to God. And it's so important that we do that, that we cry out to God, to stop crying out to God, to put the injustice and the evil from our minds, to to just stop caring would actually be the far easier thing to do. But it's not the way of faith. It's not the way that God's Word calls us. So then let's work through God's Word this morning and consider what He would teach us through our text in 1 Kings 21. This palace for which Ahab wanted this this garden was Ahab's second palace, and, and he might have actually had several others as well. And the commentaries debate why it matters that he wanted this this a vineyard for a vegetable, gar- vegetable garden, why the author bothers telling us that, that little detail. But I think the author tells us that detail to highlight how trivial the, the motive really was for Ahab, to show how sick he was to, to do this to Naboth. He and Jezebel had this man killed, stolen away from his wife and children for a stupid little vegetable garden how trivial the murder was. Now it's important that we also understand that Naboth, for his part, could not have sold this field to the king. He wasn't just being stubborn. You actually notice in in the way that Ahab himself phrases it, Naboth tells him, I cannot give you the inheritance of my fathers. Well, Ahab goes off to Jezebel when he's sulking before her, and he tells her, look, I gave this very reasonable offer to Naboth. I said, I'll buy the field, or, or I'll give you a better one for it. And all he told me was, I will not sell you my field. Well, that's not what happened. Naboth wasn't just being stubborn. He could not sell this field to to Ahab because when God allocated the land of, of Israel under Joshua, he explicitly several times forbade the permanent sale of land outside of a family. Every Israelite family, every clan was given their own parcel of land and that was to be their inheritance for forever. And, and God did that so that people would not end up accruing more and more land, so that the rich would not, not only become richer and richer, which is acceptable, but end up taking away the means of income of the poor, which is certainly not acceptable. So Scripture doesn't, of course, condemn the fact that there are rich people and poor people. God has made both. Scripture says so. Income inequality is not the problem, but stealing away the means of income is wrong before God. And of course, anyone who works in business knows that this happens all the time. The rich can not only take the money from the poor, but the very means of income from the poor. And so that's why there were these laws that you could not take the land of another family. It was their means of income. So Naboth then was bound by his faith and bound by his conscience to refuse Ahab's offer. For all we know, he might have even wanted to make 
that deal. We don't know that it was even an extraordinarily great piece of land. And you notice Ahab promised a fair price or an even better field, but Naboth could not make that deal because this was the land that God had given him. And so he was acting here out of faith. And that's then where the problems begin for Naboth. Ahab was angry. Maybe he didn't know about this law, or more likely he just didn't care. He thought that was a dumb reason not to sell your land. Those old laws that God had given hundreds of years ago through Moses, why should they still matter in this case? So Ahab goes back to his palace to sulk. It says he's, he's vexed, he's sullen. For, for his, it's interesting, for all his reputation as a, as a powerful king, which he was, he expanded Israel's borders, he grew Israel's armies, he rebuilt Israel's economy. He was a very popular king. But you can't miss how small a man he really was when he's at home. And you see that so clearly in this chapter. He lays down on his bed, turns away his face, and will not eat any food. He's like a little toddler throwing a temper tantrum. And, and all for what? For a silly little vegetable garden. And you can immediately tell who wore the royal pants in that family. When Jezebel hears about it, she says to him in verse 7, Aren't you the king of Israel? Or as your translation says, don't you have authority over Israel? You can almost see her just shaking her head at her husband. And you get the sense that that for Jezebel, she really didn't understand why Ahab didn't just go and take that field. She grew up as a princess in Tyre, and that's the way that things worked in her daddy's land. He would take whatever he wanted. And so it seems to not even occur to her that as king, you can't just take whatever you want. Isn't that what it means to be king? She, she essentially asks Ahab. It's interesting, Ahab, for all his faults, for all the evil that, that lived within him, he still grew up in the covenant. He still had this sense of, this is a line you do not cross. This is right and, and this is wrong. Of course, he did ultimately cross it, but you see he has these reservations that just come from from growing up in the covenant. But Jezebel has no reservations, no qualms at all. And her words to Ahab send chills down your spine. She says, there, there, go and get something to eat. I will get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so verse 8 tells us what she did. She wrote letters in Ahab's name. She had them proclaim a feast. She had false witnesses come with a charge against Ahab or against Naboth, and thus he would be stoned to death. Now we need to notice that Jezebel sent this letter to the elders and the leaders of the town who lived with Naboth. It's important to understand this. She didn't just do this behind the scenes. She, she didn't just send this to those false witnesses themselves, nor did she just send this letter to a few allies that she had with her in the city. No, she sent this to the elders and the leaders of the city. Take a moment to reflect on, on that reality. These are people who lived with Naboth, in his city, who knew him, and who had the responsibility to protect justice and and righteousness. And that's the most horrible aspect of this whole story. Naboth wasn't ambushed by the secret police 
or by members of the mafia. No, he was killed, betrayed by the elders and leaders of the city who knew him well and who lived with him, who chose to follow Jezebel's orders instead of stand up for what is right. And we don't know why they made that choice. Maybe it was because they hated Naboth themselves. It seems like a very real possibility. Wicked wicked people, by default, hate those who who fear God. Men and women who live in sin can't stand to see the righteous, and so they're happy to do away with the righteous. But we don't know whether these elders hated Naboth or whether they were even happy to carry out these orders. Maybe they even felt horrible carrying out these orders, but what we know is that they did carry them out. You don't read of any protest or any attempt to to save Naboth's life. So whether they hated him or not, they all knew exactly what happened to someone who stood up against Samaria, who stood up against Jezebel and Ahab. And after all, they had their own families to think about. So maybe they were motivated by fear, maybe by hate. But we read that they did exactly what Jezebel said, word for word. And you notice the text emphasizes that. It repeats the entire order. It first says, here's what Jezebel told them to do. And then word for word it says, and here's exactly what they did. They did exactly what she says. And and that's what makes this such a horrible story. It's what makes the injustice so unbearable. The very people who should have been defending Naboth and protecting justice betrayed him and orchestrated his own death. And this entire town then was complicit in Naboth's death. The entire town. You can just imagine as as he was defending himself against these, these strangers he didn't know, these, these false accusations suddenly being thrown at him, he must have looked around at his own townspeople and, and looked into their eyes knowing that they knew better than to believe what was being said. And all of them must have just turned their eyes away from him. You can imagine even as he was being led outside of the city with the cries of his wife and children behind him that still he would have thought, surely someone will stop this. Everyone knows better than this. We can only imagine how he was pleading with his own people who knew him to defend him. But nothing, it seems he said, made any difference. And in the end he was tied up and the stones began flying and his righteous life is smashed away. Now you notice this whole thing was done with a deeply religious aura. Jezebel had them proclaim a fast. She knew how to use the people's religion to work them up and accomplish her goals. She had them accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. So he was made out to be a traitor not just to the religion but also to the country. So there's a deep show of religion and a deep show of patriotism behind this. She had them get two witnesses according to the law of God. And they had, Nab- they, and they, they had Naboth dragged outside of the city also according to the law of God. So, so Jezebel actually knew the law of God very well. And it was all a very religious show. And of course it was all a horrible insult and a sacrilege before God. 
Well, when it was all over, they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And as soon as she heard it, she said to to Ahab, Arise and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for he's not alive, he is dead. And that's what we see Ahab does. And you notice Ahab doesn't ask any questions. He obviously knew this was more than just a coincidence that Naboth was suddenly dead. But he probably didn't want to know how Jezebel got the job done. He probably figured, you know what, that's, that's her business. I didn't do it. I'm not responsible. All I need to know is the vineyard is available for me. But as soon as he does that, as soon as he goes down to take possession of that vineyard, he makes it as clear as day that he is just as guilty in God's eyes as Jezebel was for Naboth's blood. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the world that we live in. We all know that Naboth is only one of hundreds, even thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, whose blood has been spilled by their own people, whether that's, that was out of fear or hatred or an unwillingness to stand up for what is right. This kind of injustice is everywhere in our world. It's pervasive, and it's the kind of injustice that when we think about it makes us sick to the stomach. It makes so many people conclude that there is no God. There's the old saying, virtue in stress and vice in triumph has made atheists out of many, many people. And most of these names never get recorded. They don't get memorials. They don't get... They don't get days where we remember them. They don't get texts in Scripture that tell of their death. Most of them are never remembered. Most of them never on this side of eternity see justice. In fact, you don't see this in the text, but in 2 Kings 9, we discover that Naboth's sons and his wife also ended up killed in this incident. It's possible they were killed right then and there with Naboth. Or maybe it was years later. Maybe the government just didn't trust them to keep their mouths shut. Or maybe there there was some kind of attempt to, to see justice done and they were eliminated. And so that's where Naboth's story and his family's story ends. The truth gets buried The town moves along. The morning papers say that Naboth had cursed God. A traitor to the country and the religion had been killed. And all was over. Ahab gets his field. And a beautiful new garden is being built next to the palace. To everyone else's eyes, this looks like progress. Soon, no one would remember who owned that land. No one except for God. And that's what we see in 1 Kings Uh, 21 verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. Notice he calls it the vineyard of Naboth. For God, it doesn't matter what kind of official documents Ahab might have. It doesn't matter if he's now put up a sign that says official palace garden. For God, this was and would always remain Naboth's vineyard. And so he says, behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth. 
So the elders and the leaders of the town, they could have burned Jezebel's letters. They could try and bury the story so that it never comes up again. But no injustice, not even of the smallest kind, ever escapes God's eyes. If nobody on earth is left pleading Naboth's cause, God in heaven still sees it and remembers it. Here in the West, the thought of God being an avenging God is a thought that can sometimes make us uncomfortable. We'd rather talk about God being love than God being wrath. And so we often wonder what to do with the God that we find in both the Old and the New Testament. And there are many texts in Scripture that that we find ourselves very often skipping. Let me read just a couple of them. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. God says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Isaiah 1, verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. One more, Nahum 1 verse 2. The Lord is an avenging and jealous God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Here in the West, those verses bring us before a God that we might find ourselves uncomfortable with. But to the Naboth's of this world and to the hundreds of others and thousands of others who've experienced the worst kinds of injustices against them. Consider what a precious truth this is, that this is who God is, that God is an avenging God, that God sees the blood of the innocent and avenges it, that he doesn't overlook it, he doesn't forget it. Their cause is always before his eyes. The hurt, the offense never gets old before God. The outrage still always burns before him. And he still has his mind fixed on seeing justice done. And he will for eternity. And that's the message that God tells Elijah then to bring to Ahab. He says, you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your own blood. So I can't explain for you why God didn't intervene when Naboth was being killed. God certainly could have. But he didn't, and he didn't for reasons that only God himself knows. But here we see he did see, and he will avenge. We see his absolute commitment to avenge the blood of the innocent. I can't explain why God allows so much evil to go on in our world. To be confronted with it, to think about it, really does sicken someone's soul. We know that what happened to Naboth was wrong and it demands justice. And we know that there are thousands and thousands of others just like Naboth whose lives were ripped away unjustly by the very people who ought to have been protecting them. 
We would, of course, prefer it if God would just intervene, if God would stop these things from happening, but He doesn't. Instead, we see God promises to repay. He promises justice will come. God doesn't tell us why He's allowed sin and evil to go on for as long as it has. Perhaps it's there in in the words of Romans 1 where Paul tells us that God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. Perhaps it's found in the fact that really all of us are more guilty than any of us can imagine. And if God would stop all evil immediately, then all of us would perish Perhaps it's for those reasons. But one thing we certainly do know, and we are assured that God sees and God will fully repay all injustice and evil. God doesn't promise us that He will protect us from evil men or women, but He does promise that He will carry out justice for us. Even if everyone else is determined to look the other way, to close their eyes to the evil, to brush it all under the rug, God sees and God never forgets. He will right every wrong. The blood of the innocent matters before God. And so that's the message Elijah brings to Ahab as he's standing there in Naboth's field. Maybe he was signing the papers. Maybe he was hiring new gardeners. But Ahab saw him and and Ahab said to him, Have you found me, O my enemy? Maybe even as he was saying that, he was kind of looking around for his security guards. Don't forget, he had been looking for Elijah in every nation, all the surrounding countries for years already. So now he finally sees him in the one opportunity or in the one moment when he doesn't have the opportunity to, to lay his hands on him. And Elijah responds, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And there it is again, that phrase, in the sight of the Lord. Everything we do, whether we're aware of it or not, is before the face of God. You hear this phrase very often, the fear of God. You've heard that phrase many times in the Old and the New Testament. And the fear of God that the Bible speaks of is that that fearsome, acute recognition that everything we do always is done right before the face of God, which should give us a holy sense of fear. It's what Ahab ought to have had. It's a scary expression that Elijah uses too, that he says that Ahab has sold himself to do what is evil. He has, in other words, given himself over to evil. He's traded himself in. And isn't that what happens every time we choose knowingly to sin? We give ourselves over again to sin. Paul says in Romans 5, the one who sins becomes a slave to sin. And apart from God's grace, that slavery, that selling yourself can come to a point when someone is so given over to evil that that no sin is too horrible for them to commit. And that's where we see Ahab has gone. And notice that Ahab is, is still held guilty and totally culpable for what he has done, even though he didn't direct Jezebel's actions, and, and even though he didn't even know exactly what happened to Naboth. Jezebel carried it out, but the moment that Ahab went down to take possession of Naboth's field, he declared before God that he is just as guilty as Jezebel. 
He was responsible for preventing it from happening, and instead he enjoyed the fact and took advantage of the fact that it happened. So he proves that he's just as guilty as his wife. And so Elijah comes then with the message of God's judgment. Ahab and his entire household would be burned up, destroyed, and cut off. And notice in verse 22 that, that they would be punished not only for the evil that they did to Naboth, but also you notice for the sin that he led Israel to commit. We might think that this, this sin that he committed against Naboth was far more serious than anything else that Ahab had done. And we might expect God to just deal with that great evil. But you notice in the judgment that's given to Ahab, leading Israel to worship other gods is just as high on the list. It's just as serious a sin. This, that, that sin might not produce in us the same reaction of, of repulsiveness as, as the sin against Naboth. But here we're reminded again that God's ways are higher than our ways. What He considers to be repulsive, what He considers to be worthy of death, is not always the same as what we consider to be truly great sin. You might not be able to measure idolatry in the loss of human life, but God values the glory of His name, the honor God is rightly due. He values that above everything else. And so Elijah then says, and he goes on in verse 23, Of Jezebel also the Lord has said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel, just as she had intended for Naboth, so it would be for her. This is the Lord's judgment then against Ahab. And brothers and sisters, this should be a comfort to anyone who has experienced terrible injustice in this earth. And especially if they've seen their oppressors get off scot-free. So many people in the world have, have never heard of this kind of God. A God who avenges the cause of the poor and the innocent whose blood is spilled. You think of the, the Dalits in, in India, the so-called untouchable class who are treated like dirt, still today raped, beaten, and often killed. And they are never promised any kind of justice from their gods for what they have suffered. In fact, it's those very gods, that very theology that teaches them that they deserve that kind of treatment because of supposed former lives that they've lived. Their gods tell them instead you must bear it because it's what you deserve and then perhaps in a future life you'll get a second chance. So the abuse and the oppression goes on. You think of the slaves in Rome. They were never promised any kind of justice from their gods. You think of atheism today. What kind of justice does atheism promise, and especially to its own victims? After all, in atheism, it's the survival of the fittest that brings the species forward. Atheism has no offer of justice for the poor and the oppressed. You think also in our culture of the, the millions of children who've lost their lives to abortion. Do they get a promise of justice one day? Certainly they don't in our culture. They're taught that no justice will ever come because what was done to them was done in the righteous, noble cause of women's rights and freedom. And really, 
for, for those that, that managed to survive the abortion, disfigured afterwards, mentally handicapped, the only injustice that is said was ever done to them is that the job wasn't properly finished. There is no justice in any other religion. But we, really, we don't even have to look outside of the church, do we, to see the poor and the innocent oppressed, even within the church Many children have experienced horrible abuse at the hands of the very people who were supposed to be their spiritual leaders who were supposed to protect them. Just a couple months ago, the Roman Catholic Church in Australia released its statistics. Almost 5,000 children had been abused by priests just in the last 35 years, and that's just in Australia. Many of them were ignored, and worse, many of them were even punished for speaking out, for trying to report the abuse. The statistics aren't available yet in Canada, but we can certainly imagine that there's a similar number here, especially in the missions to indigenous communities. And it's also the case, certainly not just in Roman Catholic churches, but in Protestant churches as well. It's unbearable to think of the abuse that's been done by the hands of the leadership of the church in the name of Christ and the victims being ignored, silenced, or even punished for speaking out. And it has happened, and it undoubtedly continues to happen. So many people, people made in the image of God, have been robbed of any hope of ever seeing justice. They're told they shouldn't look for it. They're told God won't give it. They don't know of a God who carries out justice. But God does, and God will. And that's what you see in this text. We should never, ever shy away from that truth, as uncomfortable as that sometimes might make us. We should never insist that God is only love and not wrath. He is also a consuming fire. He will punish his adversaries, beginning with those in the church. This is a precious truth. It's a truth we ought to hold on to and never let go of. We might not know why God doesn't intervene sooner, but we must keep crying out to him to bring justice for those who are oppressed. And so that's the message Elijah brings to Ahab. God will come with vengeance for what he did to Naboth as well as for what he did leading Israel into sin and idolatry. But then verse, verse 27, we'll close on this thought, verse 27 brings one of the most surprising twists to such a dark chapter. It says, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his flesh, fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. I've mentioned it before, people are amazingly complex. And the book of Kings is very honest about that reality. That's what we see now with Ahab as well. Up till this point, Ahab has consistently just done evil after evil. And verse 25 tells us there were none who had sold themselves to do evil like Ahab had done. And yet, Ahab, at least in part now, repented when he heard this judgment from God. And here's the amazing thing, and I'll be honest, it's a, it's a truth that makes me uncomfortable, and I imagine it does the same for you. God responded 
to that repentance with grace for Ahab. You can hardly believe it and and you, you find yourself almost not wanting it to be true. This man does not deserve God's grace. How can God show mercy to him after what he did to Naboth? What about God's justice? And you get the sense that Elijah must have felt the same way because God actually never addresses this to to Ahab himself. He just tells this to Elijah. He, He mentions to Elijah, Do you now see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Elijah must have felt something like what Jonah felt when he was commanded to go and preach the gospel or preach God's grace to the Ninevites. And the text does, and of course we know that that Jonah found that calling, that task, abominable. That's the last thing he wanted to do, to show grace to those truly horrible people. Well, the text doesn't tell us Elijah's response, but I suspect that if it had been me instead of Elijah, I would have done much the same as Jonah. I would have turned around and walked away. How can God show mercy to a man like Ahab? Well, there's three things that we should observe from Ahab's repentance and God's response, and then we'll close. So very briefly, first we, should, we need to understand that, that no sin, no guilt is too much for God's mercy, as uncomfortable as that might make us. If God chooses to forgive, there is no sin that he cannot overcome. Now hearing that might rightly make us wonder, what then about God's justice? Didn't God promise that he saw Naboth's blood being spilled and would avenge it? What about God's justice? If Ahab gets a chance to repent, then what about justice for Naboth? Does that mean Naboth is now going to have to give up the justice that he, is, that he deserves? How is that then fair to Naboth? Well, here's where we need to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because only the gospel can make sense of God's absolute, perfect unrelenting justice on the one hand and his surprising undeserved mercy on the other. The truth is God will punish all sin. No sin will ever go unpunished even in the smallest degree. But to those who repent that punishment will be borne by Jesus Christ. Now you might hear that and and you might think, but okay, is that really fair? Don't the victims still then get ripped off? And the answer is no, they don't. They can't and they wouldn't want to add anything to God's vengeance as he poured it out on Jesus Christ. If their oppressors have been united to Christ have repented, have been found in Christ, they have died with Christ, and their sins have been crucified with Christ. Their old selves have died. There will never be two saints that meet in heaven, one an oppressor and one the abused, and and the oppressor says to the abused, ha, I got away with it. No, he will spend eternity knowing how undeserving he is to be there. The old man will certainly have died. 
That would be the old man talking if he were to say such a thing. In heaven and on the new earth, there will only ever be broken, contrite, forgiven sinners who know how undeserving they are, who acknowledge how horrible their sins were, how deserving they were of God's wrath, who hate everything that they used to be and who owe an eternity of praise to God, who will never stop giving thanks to God for the grace that they did not deserve but received because Christ bore the wrath of hell in their place. And that's why we can pray for justice. We, can, we see this all the time in the Psalms. David's prayers for God to avenge him. We can pray for justice. We can cry out for God to avenge our blood. And the saints in, in the Middle East, you saw in the bulletin, Reverend Paul wrote a, a blurb about what seems to be a rising tide of persecution against the church and the injustice and, and the horrible abuse that so many experience. A video came out this past week, I believe. I saw it this past week anyways. Didn't watch the whole thing, but of, of ISIS coming in and taking dozens of Christians, tying them up and cutting their throats one by one. We can pray for God to avenge their blood, and we should make that prayer. We can, we can pray for that while at the same time praying that God would forgive our enemies, praying that they would repent, that they would die with Christ so that new men and women would rise in their place. If Christ has chosen to take their punishment on Himself and they have died with Him, then we cannot hold it against them that Christ has suffered instead of them because we know that Christ has done the same for us. And God's word here to Ahab reminds us that, that Ahab's sin against God's honor is just as great as Ahab's sin against Naboth. And that's a sin that all of us have committed as well. And so that enables us then to pray for justice, to cry out for justice as you see even the saints in heaven in Revelation 6 are doing. They cry for God to avenge their blood and yet at the same time forgive even the greatest offenses. That's the first thing we see from Ahab's repentance and God's response. Secondly, this sudden repentance from Ahab also shows us that when God offers forgiveness, God always means it, even to the worst of sinners. We can sometimes believe the gospel at a, at a theological level and yet still somehow think it, it's not for me because my sins are too great. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Nobody gets God's grace because they somehow deserve it. That's a contradiction in terms. Nobody's forgiven because they're worthy of God's forgiveness. As long then, as long as you are still alive, the gospel is for you. If you turn, if you repent, if you find your life in Christ, you will be forgiven, even if your sins are as great or greater than Ahab's. If you turn and repent, you will find forgiveness in Christ, no matter how horrible a sinner you have been. If that's true for Ahab, that's certainly true for all of us. 
And then thirdly and lastly, unfortunately, this episode also teaches us about the reality of false repentance. And that's what Ahab's repentance turned out to be. He repented to a certain degree. He was sorry for what he had done because he recognized God's judgment against him. And he humbled himself before God. But we're going to see in the next chapters, it wasn't long before he abandoned that repentance and went back to living the same old evil that he had been living before. Paul speaks about the difference between true godly grief and repentance and temporary worldly grief. That's in 2 Corinthians 6. It's entirely possible to, to feel sorry for our sin, to feel bad that we've sinned, and, and perhaps even to do some kind of penance for our sins, some way of paying God back for our sins without actually being changed at all inside. And that's what we see Ahab did. He did feel bad. He was sorry, and sorry enough that God postponed the judgment against him. But even though Ahab was sorry, his fundamental allegiance to himself above everything that led him to commit the sin in the first place, that allegiance never changed. He didn't give Naboth's field back, which would have been the, the true sign of repentance, to give the field back to Naboth's family. He never gave it back, as far as we know. And most importantly, he never gave his life over to God. In the end, Ahab never did anything more than just feel bad. He didn't forsake his sins. He didn't give his life over to God. He, didn't, he just felt bad until eventually he felt better again and then went on living the same way he had lived before. There are only two options before us whenever we hear God's judgment against us and God's call to repent. And either option still requires us to die. We can either hold on to our present life and ultimately die under God's judgment, or we can die with Christ now, meaning we confess our sins to one another, to God, and find our lives in Christ, no longer living for ourselves, but for Him who died for us. But either way, we must die when we hear God's judgment, God's judgment against us. Well, in the next chapter, we see Ahab just returning back to his former self, proving his repentance was nothing more than superficial and short-lived. He refused to give up being the same old sinful Ahab. And in the end, Naboth's blood would be fully avenged, and not in Christ, but against Ahab himself. And Ahab, even today, is still burning in hell, still facing the wrath of God for the sin he committed against Naboth. Rest assured, God's justice is far worse, far more terrible than anything you might devise against your oppressors. Not only were Ahab and Jezebel's bodies eaten by wild dogs, they are still in hell now, experiencing the wrath of God. And in the final resurrection, their bodies will be raised only to be cast into hell to experience bodily suffering for eternity because God sees to it that the blood of the innocent will be avenged. 
But even though Ahab forsook God, God's mercy does shine clear in this text for us. He loves to show mercy. He's eager to show grace. And even the worst of sinners like Ahab are not beyond the reach of God's grace if they turn and they repent. If that's you, if you feel God's judgment against you because of a life of sin that you know to be wrong, don't let the sun go down on this day. Repent. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to one another. Turn to Christ, and through Christ, crucify your old self, and discover God's abundant mercy. Amen.